Welcome to the Tell Us Something podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll hear stories about surviving a grizzly bear attack, a mother's vigil over her sick children in the hospital, a scientist who discovers a connection between lead ammunition and the lead in bloodstreams of large birds like eagles, and a man who snorts his crown into his sinus cavity during what was supposed to be a routine visit to the dentist. Our podcast was recorded in front of a live audience on June 12, 2019 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, What Are the Chances? Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Kate Halliba. While walking near the Yellowstone River with her dog, Kate is attacked by a grizzly bear. She calls her story, I Didn't Die. 20 miles outside of Yellowstone National Park along the Yellowstone River at a place called Point of Rocks. October 13th, 2015, I was a year into, uh, I was a year into my era of radical solitude living in emigrant Montana with my 12-year-old dog, Carmen. On this fall day, it was 70 degrees and the sky was blue and there were big white puffer clouds above the Absorkies. Carmen and I came there every day. Because shortly after moving to Emigrant, Carmen had injured her leg, so hiking was out. So this is what we did every day. And she would poke around at the edge of the backflow and wade in the pools that gathered there. And I would watch the bird migrations and wander around and just generally feel just privileged and blessed to live in this wild and radiant place. And the sound of the outdoors was just always wind and water. On this day, we did what we usually did, and we headed down the trail through the, the vines and the willows and the trees towards a beach on the river. And as we walked along, we came to realize around the same time that today, after a year, suddenly we weren't alone. Carmen's hackles went up, and she took small, tight steps, and I was singing to let whatever was there know that we were there, too, and we slowed down, and Carmen stuck her nose into the brush off the trail, and I took a step past her, and I turned back and said her name, Carmen, and I turned just a quarter turn, and I was face to face with a grizzly bear. And the river water was pulling down the fur on his cheeks, and his eyes were round and brown, and I'm sure we were just face to face like that for an instant, but nonetheless, in that instant, I knew it was the demarcation point between everything that came before, and nothing's ever going to be the same. I don't know how he took me down. I just know that when I came to, I was under the bear, and I couldn't move, and Past his shoulder and his front leg, I could see the yellow and red leaves and the twisted vines, and his teeth were coming in through my head, and they were sharp and hot, and I just could feel the cutting sensation, and I thought, so this is how I die. I did not leave a will. <laughs> Somebody's going to find my remains. Will Carmen make it out to the River Rock Beach? Will someone find her there? So now I find out, meaning whether there's life after death. Then the bear looked up. I was still trapped under him. And then in one motion, he took a jump to the right and a curve in the direction where I knew Carmen was standing. 
I, I put my hand on my head, I stayed low, and I looked over my shoulder, and I saw his big brown ass and his slug of a tail, and I, I couldn't hear anything, and I, and I started to crawl forward, and I stumbled to my feet, and I felt like I was holding my scalp together as I kind of made my way through the, the brush until I came out on the River Rock Beach, and everything had a strange yellow hue, and there was about a football field to the parking lot, and you know, I, I start stumbling that direction, and I look over my shoulder to the right, and about 20 yards downriver, bad leg and all, Carmen comes flying out of the brush. And we make eye contact, even at that distance, we both know the task at hand. And we, she comes at an angle, and we get to the creeks, we stomp through, we make it to the car, and we wait 20 minutes for the ambulance. Carmen got out with a scratch on her nose. <laughs> I got MRI'd, I got my head stapled, I had a ruptured duct in my face, cuts and bruises, twisted spine, and I kept telling everyone in the emergency room, I'm fine, I'm fine, where's my dog, I'm fine. About two hours later, a friend showed up who I had called from the ambulance. He walked into the little curtain room and I hadn't seen myself yet, so I said, how do I look? And he said, like you were in a bar fight in Anaconda. So the next morning I wake up and, you know, I feel I'm fine, but I should probably be closer to civilization. So I load up Carmen and we go to stay with some friends in Helena and I'm driving, 70, 80, talking on the phone, oh yeah, crazy, but I'm fine, I'm fine. Get to Townsend, uh, about 30 miles outside of Helena, and you know what? I wasn't fine. The adrenaline crashed. I hadn't realized I was running on adrenaline, and my vision shrank to like I was looking through a telescope. And I started feeling, it felt like an undulation of the structure of my mind. I shouldn't be driving, I thought, but I made it. And I woke up the next morning on my friend's couch, post-concussion, altered state, otherworldly even, and I felt like all the networks, all the neural networks had been Horn out of my mind, it was completely empty. It was pristine, it actually felt like clarity. So I would take Carmen out for little daughters around the neighborhood, and while we walked, I felt like we were in this etheric bubble, that we were so safe, we were untouchable. And day three, we're out on our daughter, and she's sniffing along the edge of a chain link fence, and. The wind blows some leaves and I look in the direction and into my empty head the words come up, the ecosystem retained me. And I felt connected, I felt connected to life. In, in a way, this outsider introvert has no recollection of ever feeling before. Day eight, I'm still at my friend's house. I figure I've gotta get back, so I better see if I can feed myself. And I go into their kitchen, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna make roasted vegetables. But there was no thought to follow that. And then it's like I felt it click, 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 almost like feeling the circuits of my mind reconstitute. And then it was, oh yeah, it downloaded. I know how to make roasted vegetables. Day 10, staples come out of my head, and I head back to Emigrant. I'm still kind of beat up, but I get back to our narrow three-story house with the window that looks out over Emigrant and Chico Peaks and the Yellowstone River and back in radical solitude and sitting at the kitchen table thinking, 
wait, did that even really just happen? I mean, if that happened, I'd be dead. Or Carmen would be dead. Someone would be dead. Am I a ghost and I don't realize I'm dead? And I thought about the certainty that I felt under the bear. There, there was no tomorrow. There was no future. I was certain. And I was wrong. Which means it wasn't certainty. And suddenly certainty just seemed like a completely fraudulent concept to me. And it kind of took ideas like trusting your heart and listening to your gut with it. It's like, you can do those things, but they're just feelings. They're not crystal balls or compasses. And, then I started thinking about suicide. Not because I was going to do it, but because I realized I wasn't. And I'm someone who had carried around suicide in my hip pocket my entire adult life. It was my ace. If emotional pain ever got too bad, I would take myself out. Financial ruin, I would take myself out. Even if I were old and had some physical condition I didn't want to endure, I would take myself out. And now I knew that wasn't the case. The ecosystem retained me. It didn't seem up to me. Plus, I knew I had my head in a bear's jaw, another half inch, and I would have been dead, and the bear jumped off. So you could be trapped and powerless with no choices, and the bear could jump off. A couple days later, I'm out on the deck, night, went out to see the constellations and the winds blowing like it does in the Paradise Valley, and I heard a voice. And the voice said, you never have to be afraid of anything ever again. And I, th I, didn't, I knew it didn't mean nothing bad was ever going to happen. It just meant you don't have to be afraid. And I, and I thought that made sense, the way certainty turned out to be a fraud. This was just another speculation about the future that could be true and may not be true. And the next day, I was driving the curves of East River Road thinking, oh, no, you know, um, I heard a voice last night, and, and I heard it again. And it said, you never have to ask for anything ever again. And I knew it wasn't good because I was going to get everything I wanted. It just meant, I don't know, it just changed my relationships to my wants and my desires. And it's hard to explain, but it was like, they were like, kind of blossoms on the surface of me as opposed to things that had to be measured or fashioned into goals. So no suicide, no out, no certainty, um, fears different, different relationships to my wants and desires. It all felt like in this time the circuits of my mind were trying to reconstitute themselves and, and they, they couldn't. They couldn't come back the same in this space. And I'm sure I seemed the same to my friends, but in that most intimate part of myself I felt different. When I was 26, I had three dreams, and I remembered them a month after the bear. I'd always remembered them, didn't put a lot of meaning on them, but dream one. Big, long stairways, I have to climb up them, and there's bears sleeping all along the way, so shh, be careful. Dream two, I'm opening up a closet, and shh, quiet, because there's a bear sleeping up on the shelf. 
Dream three, I'm sleeping in some cool spring green grass, and then all of a sudden, oh, boom, boom, there's a grizzly bear coming by, and I, and I see his feet, and I see him walk by, and I smell the gamey smell, and at the time, the dream's materiality surprised me, and in retrospect, the accuracy did as well, but in my dream in the spring, this bear passed me by, but in the fall by the river, the bear took me to the ground. But the bear didn't take my life, and the bear didn't take my dog. But the bear took the foundation of my psyche. He, he changed my mind. The bear changed me. Thanks, Kate. Kate Halava has worked in public policy in Montana for more than 20 years. She's a systems nerd, a marijuana policy consultant, and author of the novel Shaking Out the Dead. Our next story comes to us from Elsie Anhanga, who was selected to cook meals for a large church group over the course of three days. Both of her children fall terribly ill, and she must accompany them to the hospital, where she holds vigil over them. Elsie's story is called Another Chance. Hello, everyone. I want to... Uh, give a special shout out to the Susie gang at the back there. I love you all. I love you, Montana. It was a cold evening in the month of May in 2014. My husband called me inside and announced that we are going to host uh, a meeting in my home. So it's a real privilege to host that meeting. It's a church meeting. It gathers young university students all around the country in Yaoundé, Cameroon, where I live. So the next morning, I gathered pots, really large pots, gallons of water, got the place prepared, waiting for the team. Each day had a team. They had to cook for a week. So. Uh, that morning, I got the place arranged, and our space where we live was hosting three families. It was this cramped space, three families living with some kind of hostility, and I have a large family. We occupy the bigger space, but uh, sometimes the neighbor really get cross and hostile with my children playing around. So the atmosphere was tense before the arrival of these guests on the day of that meeting. So on that day, um, the church had already programmed. They had brought in bags of rice, gallons of oil, and uh, there were preparations already going on for the breakfast for that morning. You could, I could smell onion in oil, vegetable oil, and it was a nice time. Everything was going as it had been arranged previously. So I'm a teacher. I went to school. I had a meeting. I went to school, went, attended my meeting, and came back. I changed into my African kaba, that's what is called a flowing gown. I wore it, I joined the ladies who were cooking in the kitchen. Everything was going well, there was music, we were cooking, we're cooking the afternoon meal. All of a sudden, my little boy David ran in and said, Mama, Mama, come, come quickly, there's something happening in the parlor, come, come, run in, come. I left the ladies there cooking, I went into uh, the sitting room, when I got there, what I saw frightened me. I saw my, my child called Othniel. His mouth 
was, his tongue was hanging out of his mouth, his eyes turned out, and I, in a flash, I saw death. And it brought to mind uh, a Cameroonian player who died in France in such circumstances. I really got afraid. I screamed aloud and called for help. So where we were, it's not easy having transportation. So they arranged with other members who were there. They got a bike and they quickly transported uh, Othniel to the hospital. I could not follow immediately, so they had to arrange for a second bike to uh, transport me to the hospital. It took about seven minutes for me to get to the hospital. I was only crying in my heart, praying aloud, oh God, don't let Othniel die. Don't let this child die. I'm hosting this uh, meeting. I don't have any ill intention. I count it a privilege. I just want to serve you. I just want to be of service to my community and to the church. So I was just praying and shouting out aloud. I just was still dressed in that kaba. There was soot. Uh, we cook on open fire, so I was smelly with grease and, and, and smoke. I just got out in that same attire and I rushed to the hospital. While in the hospital, they just quickly took the boy to the emergency room, took the uh, Othniel to the emergency room and they were attending to him. One hour, two hours, nobody was coming out of the room. I got confused. I was still asking God, please don't let this child die. So uh, at about an hour or so or two after, the doctor came and announced to me that, oh, lady, your, your son has a serious condition. We do not really know what is it, but we are suspecting it's meningitis, and we have to carry out a serious test. And that test has to be carried out with samples, blood samples from the spine. And if we miss it, this child is going to be crippled for the rest of his life. I felt broken. I was really worried. I didn't know what to say. So he told me that information and went back inside. They were there for another hour or two. At that time, it was almost around 8 p.m. in the night. They were still inside. They stayed there for some time after they came out with the child. It was a great relief. They carried the child, installed him in the ward, and I was there with him in those same shabby dresses, just sitting there. He could not talk. He was unconscious, and I was there with him. We're sitting down. After a while, I just saw another nurse busting with a second child, David, and say, oh, we could not leave him. He was having a serious condition, and we did not want him to have the same crisis like the first child. They installed both of them on one bed in our African society. Sometimes the hospitals really get cramped. So the two children were on one bed, one, the first one, Othniel, lay on the uh, upper side with fluids hanging, drip sets hanging from uh, bottles uh, from the sands around the bed. The other second child, David, who informed me about the sickness of the other one, lay on the second side. It was a terrible sight. While they brought both of them, the first one was still unconscious, he couldn't talk. The other one, he wasn't really serious, but he was hot, he had a very high temperature, so they put him on the other side of the of the bed, I sat there. I was questioning myself. I asked myself several questions. I asked what I'd done wrong to have two children sleeping on the bed, sick at the same time. I was just going through my mind, asking several questions. After about midnight, 1 a.m., the first child who was seriously sick opened his eyes and asked, called Mama. I was very happy. I felt so consoled. It 
gave me some hope that the child was alive again. I was still not very sure after they had brought him back into the world. So when he called out, I was happy. I talked with him. He was sore in the throat. He couldn't speak out loud, but he could make some signs showing life, and I was very happy. The other one was under control. He was stable. He was fine, and uh, I, uh, we were fine. So at that time, when the two children were stable, I got out, went to the bathroom, washed the same clothes I had on, squeezed them dry, and put them back on. And when I came back to that room, I had a great lesson to learn. I thought that, uh, I'm still thinking to, to, till today, that God had a great lesson for me. He, wants, he wanted me to be closer to my children, closer to my family, and to learn to know that in adversity, uh, in, even in uh, joyful situations, there is still adversity. I felt so happy after that. I, we went back home with the children. Everything got settled, and today the children are doing fine. They are great. They are in school, and I thank God so much. I want to thank you for listening. Thanks, Elsie. Elsie Ananga received her BA and MA degrees and high school teacher's diploma in modern English letters from the University of Yaoundé One in Cameroon. She has been an English language teacher in government high school in Yaoundé, Cameroon since 2006. Elsie is very keen on poetry writing. She possesses a collection of poems. She received the 2008 Anglophone Cameroon Writers Association Award for her poetry entry. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never heard it before. You can subscribe to Tell Us Something wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. We have two more stories in this episode. Before I get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors. CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store. Supporting western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years, the Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beer, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at GoodFoodStore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. And coming in the fall of 2019, the Elm in Bozeman, Montana. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Learn more at logjampresents.com. A few news items before we get back to the stories. We are excited to announce our new storytelling workshops. Let Tell Us Something help you craft your own story one-on-one. We also offer group workshops with corporate and nonprofit pricing. To schedule a workshop and learn more, go to tellussomething.org slash workshops. We are currently taking story pitches for the fall quarter of Tell Us Something live event in Missoula. The theme is Leap of Faith. To pitch your Leap of Faith story, call 406-203-4683. Our next live storytelling event is in Missoula at the Wilma on September 24th. Get tickets for that at logjampresents.com. The theme, Leap of Faith. 
All right, let's get back to the storytelling. In our next story, Mike McTee is an environmental scientist for MPG Ranch in the Bitterroot Valley in Montana. During the course of his studies, he learns how lead ammunition is turning up in the bloodstream of living birds of prey and sets out to begin making changes. Mike calls his story, A Gun Nut Goes Green. Back when I was a high schooler, there's this day when my dad and our friend Mark loaded up the truck with a bunch of guns and some ammo. Then we went driving through the western Washington countryside, under the cedar forest, and then we found a gravel pit. So we start shooting and everything, then about an hour or two later, starts to drizzle rain. That's when I took my shirt off. So there's something you should probably know about me back then. I drank a lot of protein shakes. I lifted a lot of iron. My biceps, well my biceps were thick. My pecs, powerful. My abs, my abs were the showcase. <laughs> so that's the type of guy I was back then, right? So the shirt's off, the rain's coming down on my body, then I grab an assault rifle and a pistol and I start flexing my abs, you know, showing them off. But the weird thing about this is, is I'm showing them off to my dad, our friend Mark. <laughs> and, and if someone was to have seen me that day and then said, okay, that guy's gonna become a scientist, they would say, no, no, I don't think so. That guy, he's gonna be a raging gun nut. In about 10 years, I'll bet you that he's gonna be wearing an American flag for a bandana, he's gonna homeschool his kids, and when Barack Obama takes office, he's gonna buy more guns. But it turned out having all those experiences early on, shooting the guns, actually came into play with my job right now. So I'm an environmental scientist, I work at MPG Ranch, it's just down the valley, it's really close, it's in Florence and it's big, it's on the sapphire side and it runs from the Bitterroot River through grassland up into some mountains. We're not a normal ranch. We don't run cattle, instead we run a bunch of researchers. There's about a dozen and a half or even more researchers, there's a lot of us, and we study things ranging from what grows in the roots of plants to what elk eat. And I was lucky enough to live there for about five years at this house we call the Orchard House, which was set on this grassland on a slope the house wasn't on a slope. It was level. We've got to get that straight. Then there, there was an orchard there. And we had this beautiful view of the Bitterroot Valley. But the thing was, there was hardly any privacy there, at least in the summer, because research technicians were going in and researchers were going out. And then we had field crews and irrigation crews. It was this hive of activity. But in the winter, all of that went away. And it was quiet. And on this one day, I was sitting at the kitchen table. All I could hear was the hum of the refrigerator, my fingers typing on the keyboard. Then I hear this car rattling up the driveway, and I couldn't quite see who it was. Then I hear it stop. The doors open. They slam shut. And the front door of the house opens, also slams shut. Then in comes Rob and Adam from Raptor View Research Institute. They work here in Missoula. And Rob, he has this golden eagle in his hands, this giant golden eagle, and he looks at me, he goes, hey Mike, we're understaffed today, can you help us process this eagle? I said, yeah, yeah I can help. So I jump out of my chair, and he hands me this eagle, and he goes, okay, grab his legs like two drumsticks, keep his talons up high. So I do that and I bring it in, and they caught this thing on a carcass, but it smelled clean. 
And I'm looking down at his talons. They could easily zip through my forearm, so I made sure not to let the thing go. And it was just huge. And Rob and Adam, they measure the bill length on this, the talon length, the eagle's wingspan. They weigh it. The last thing they do is Adam. He takes the golden eagle from me. He puts it down on the hardwood floor, very delicately. Rob, he takes out a syringe, and with the eagle's wing open just like this, Rob sticks in that syringe into a vein, and he withdraws a tiny bit of blood. And they've been taking blood samples for quite a while now because what they found is nearly every single golden eagle they catch has a bunch of lead flowing through its blood. So the idea is if a hunter like me goes out onto the field, gets the gun, puts a lead bullet in there, chambers it, and then goes walking in the field and sees a deer or an elk, puts the rifle up, and if you're good, like if I'm good, which I usually am, shoot the thing, and once that bullet hits that animal, it's gonna travel through, and little fragments of that bullet can travel away from it and be left over in that animal. And as me, for, if I'm the hunter, and if I leave any of that in the field, a scavenger can come in and eat those fragments, fragments of lead. You all know lead is bad, right? <laughs> Does anybody in here still eat paint chips? <laughs> Maybe. Um, so yeah, stay away from lead. But the thing about this is that all the different things lead can do to us, many of those things can translate to golden eagles and other eagles and other scavengers. They can get sick, they can even die. So when you consider me, I wasn't a raging gun nut at that time, but I did like guns. I had a chemistry degree at that point. I had actually held an eagle that had elevated levels of lead. I had all the pieces of the puzzle to know that what I was doing could maybe be modified. Maybe I could use non-lead ammunition. Later that fall, I go up the Blackfoot and I shoot a nice big bull elk with a lead bullet. It's like I hadn't really learned anything with all that experience. And as my friend, he's butchering into that elk, he finds the bullet. And I weighed that bullet. 30% of it is missing. That means that it either ended up in the food that I ate, the meat that I ate, that I gave my friends and family, and or it was still left in the field, in that carcass. And I thought, what are the chances an eagle landed on that carcass. Where did it go? Because Rob and Adam, they've been catching these golden eagles for a while now, and on some of them, they put little GPS transmitters on them. Most of these things fly all the way to the Yukon and Alaska in the spring. That's far. Some go all the way to the Brooks Range. Some go within sight of the Arctic Ocean, it seems. So I'm wondering, if I leave this carcass out in the field that has lead in it, is an eagle taking my bullet to Alaska? There's something about that that just struck home with me. I felt like I was letting Rob and Adam down. I was letting myself down. And then I just made the most simple switch. I just shot a different bullet, a copper one. But then I really got into it because I had that background being a gun nut and also a scientist. And where I worked, we started writing magazine articles. We started doing science. We started doing presentations, giving outreach. And a month and a half ago, I was doing outreach in Boise, Idaho, at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous. Imagine a giant 
conference center full of vendors. Everybody's selling tents and float tubes for fishing. And there's hunters and fishermen mingling, talking. They're drinking coffee in the morning, nursing that hangover, hangover from the night before. In the afternoon, they're drinking beer. It's loud. There's this booth, a non-lead booth that I was helping run. And it was in the back corner. So it wasn't front and center or anything like that. But we had a lure that brought everybody in. We had hawks and falcons. Nobody can walk by a falconer that has this giant bird on their hand without stopping and taking out their cell phone. Everybody was there. So as people are attracted to our booth, some would meander past the falconers and then talk to us, us non-lead guys. And we had these two tables set up, and it showed the different fragmentation rates of all the different bullets you can shoot, lead and non-lead. So when we started engaging people, I was overwhelmed by how many people said, oh, hey, I'm glad you're here. I heard about this issue, heard that eagles were getting poisoned. I'm shooting non-lead, no problem. A lot of those people. But I remember a guy named Jake. He's from Austin, Texas, and he comes in, and he looked really studious. I say that because he was wearing glasses. <laughs> and, and he hadn't heard about this issue at all, it seems, so I'm giving him the rundown, giving him the spiel, and oh yeah, MPG Ranch, a lot of eagles have lead, and this and that. And then he nods, and he goes, do you have any partition bullets? I go, yeah, we do right here. And a partition bullet is just a very common type of lead bullet. And I picked up this container, and showed him all the little fragments that come off of that bullet. And his eyes just grow wide, and he goes wide behind the glasses, of course. And he goes, wow, my dad's got to see this. He shoots these. And then we talk about Austin, Texas, and everything he's got going there. You know, conversations drift. I shake his hand, and he wanders off. A couple hours later, he comes back with his dad. And he tells his dad everything I was telling him. He picked up the partition bullet, and his dad looks at it and he nods. And I realized he had become an advocate in a matter of a couple hours. And when I see that, I see success. And in that type of setting, when I'm shaking hands, when I'm meeting people who also support this, I can feel that success. And as more and more people recognize this issue, maybe the scavengers can feel that success too. Thanks, Mike. Mike McTee has been shooting weapons since before he could recite the alphabet. In 2006, he moved himself and his weapons from the outskirts of Seattle, Washington to Missoula, Montana. Mike is now an environmental scientist for MPG Ranch in the Bitterroot Valley, where he studies the intersection between chemistry and shooting sports. In this episode's final story, Mike Coluccia snorts his crown into his sinus cavity during what was supposed to be a routine visit to the dentist. Mike calls his story Prospector. Well, my story starts on a really beautiful, cold November day in Missoula. I had a dental appointment at two in the afternoon. I was lucky to be temporarily underemployed so I could sleep till noon. And I scheduled the appointment for two in the afternoon, and I thought, well, I'm getting a crown put on. And for those of you guys that don't know what a crown is, it's just a fake tooth that they glue on to what's left of your old tooth. <laughs> Younger people out there don't, probably don't know that yet, but you will. <laughs> so I thought, it's such a beautiful day, as is my custom. I have three rescue dogs, and I thought, why don't I throw the dogs in the truck. I'll only be there probably 20 minutes and I'll be out of there. I can take the dogs for a walk up into the woods. 
I knew I shouldn't have thought that probably, but so I went to the dentist, got in the chair. She fit my crown on. This was the permanent. All she had to do was merely glue it on. So she put it on my tooth and then she couldn't get it off. So she took a piece of floss and started flossing back and forth kind of and trying to pull it off. As she did this, it popped off the tooth and pinballed around in my mouth. I jumped out of the chair really quickly, didn't know what to do. She looked at me, I looked at her. She said, do you have the tooth? I said, no, do you? <laughs> and she said, no, I don't have it. How would I have it? So I said, well, what now? She said, well, you're gonna have to go to the ER room. And I said, why? And she said, you're going to have to get an x-ray to make sure it don't, didn't go down into your airway. So I freaked out immediately. Then I ran into the bathroom really quickly. I said, I'm going to get that thing before it goes all the way down. So I went in the bathroom and went, ah, ah, ah. For like 10 minutes, I went in there. I shoved my fingers so far down into my throat, like to China. And I just kept gagging, and I couldn't get it out. I couldn't get it out. So finally, I just gave up after about 10 minutes. And the noise I made was, well, you heard it. <laughs> so when I, came, when I went to get, come out of the bathroom, which is next to the lobby, <laughs> I, I took a quick look in the mirror, and I looked like this. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't care. I was just like, I got this tooth. I don't know where this tooth is. So I just didn't care. I opened the door. When I opened the door and I looked out, all the people in the waiting room were sitting there. And they were horrified. They were like moving back in their chairs. It's like they saw a ghost Godzilla all rolled into one. I kind of laughed myself a little at that point, but I had to remember what I was doing. They did not want to go, I guarantee you, to see that dentist after I came out of that bathroom, though. Just... So I ran back to the dentist, and I said, well, what do we do now? And she said, well, you're going to have to go to the ER. If you couldn't make it come up, you'll have to go to the ER. So I got in the truck, ran out of there, just sprinted out of there, got back in the truck, drove like a crazy person to the hospital. The dogs were in the back. They were getting thrown around. I kept apologizing. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm really sorry, but there's a tooth somewhere in my body. I don't know where it is. So I was taking chances. I was cutting in front of people, going the wrong way. I didn't care. I just wanted to get there. So finally, I get there. And the lady checking me in is so sweet and kind, but she's taking forever. And I'm trying to be polite and nice, but inside I'm going, hurry up, there's a tooth somewhere in my body. That's, I'm just feeling that way. So they take me in the back and I wait there a while and a young resident comes out and he said, well, we x-rayed you and we can't find it. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I think it's still in my throat. I, I feel like it's still in my throat. Can you x-ray my throat? 
So he x-rays my throat. About 20 minutes passes. I'm hearing people talking, chatting. Hey, Joe. Hey, Bill. Cindy, come over here. He's like waving people over to the CRT screen. I'm like, what's going on? So I go over there and look. I, and my tooth is up in my sinus cavity. What I think happened was it gets better. So what I think happened was when I jumped up out of the chair, I went and I must have snorted that tooth up into my nose. So now the resident sa says to me, well, um, we called Rocky Mountain ENT, ear, nose, and throat, and there's a guy over there, he has the right instruments. I'm like, you don't have the right instruments here? <laughs> so I run out of there like a crazy person, I'm just like, and I get into the car and I'm driving crazy over to this other place because I think, Maybe it's still, it's going to fall down. I can get it before it falls down. So I'm trying not to swallow. I'm trying not to move my head. And I get to the ENT place. And everybody's gone for the day. But the doctor's still there. But they don't admit me right away. And I'm pacing back and forth. I'm just freaking out. I'm like, hurry up. I have a tooth in my head, please. Don't you understand, you stupid people? That was all in my head. And finally, they let me back. And the doctor came out and he said, well, I don't think it's in your sinus. I've been doing this 40 years and I've never seen it happen. Comes back five minutes later. Oh yeah, it's in your sinus. So then he tells me the options are surgery with general anesthesia, or he can stick uh, hemostats down my nose and try and pull it out through my nose. So that's an easy choice, I think. So I get in the chair, and he numbs me up, and he sticks these things down my nose. That's not the worst part. So he, he says, I got it. I got it. I can hear the metal hitting that tooth when he's doing this. So he starts pulling it on it and he's pulling on it and it's just not happening. It's not coming out. And I'm like, how much longer is he going to do this? So he keeps pulling, he keeps pulling. And every time he pulls my butt cheeks, <laughs> lift off the seat. Because it was painful. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I realize he's never going to stop because this has never happened to him before. How would he know when to stop? So finally I say, enough, enough. You're killing me here. You're going to pull my brains out through my nose. So finally he says, 
I'm just going to tap it. That's the only other thing we can do. Try not to swallow it. <laughs> Says, you ready? I said, I'm ready. Let's do this. Taps it. I just go. <laughs> swallowed it instantly. So now he says, I, or I say to him, I said, now what? He said, as a matter of fact, you have to go back to the ER. I'm like, oh my God, will this hell never end? So I run out of there. I don't even hear anything else he says. I just run out of there. And since I'm by home, I dump my dogs off at home. I smoke some weed. And I can... And I can actually like take a second and say, holy shit, that was a crazy four hours so far and it's not over. So I go into the ER, they, they, it takes forever to get back in there. Everybody sounds like they're dying in the ER. I'm gonna get pneumonia and die myself, I think. So they x-ray it and they do find in fact that it was in my digestive system finally. So they get ready to check me out, and the nurse um, says on my way out, she, uh, she said, here, take these. And she gives me uh, like three or four of these plastic cowboy hats and some tongue depressors. And I look at her, and I look at her and say, well, what are these for? And she said, well, you have to go through your poop to make sure that it, that it comes out. Oh, uh, yeah, naturally, right? So I'm kind of stunned and I walk out of there. They finally let me out of there with my cowboy hats and tongue depressors. And the last thing the nurse says on my way out is, hey, be careful that tooth doesn't bite you in the ass on the way out. So I go home with my cowboy hats, and for the next three days, I'm panning my poop for that tooth. And finally, on the third day, and it's interesting, you can get good at anything, and I mean anything. Especially where getting your own poop on yourself is involved. You get really good at it. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So I finally find the tooth. And after a bunch of uh, scrubbings and boiling it, I finally bring it into my dentist. And it has been in my mouth ever since. After... <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Mike Coluccia was first introduced to improvisational comedy five years ago at a workshop taught by a member of the L.A.-based Groundlings Comedy Troupe. He's been hooked ever since, performing in community theater productions and with local improv groups. He is also a former restaurateur and whitewater river guide. 
Remember that our next live storytelling event is in Missoula at the Wilma on September 24th. Get tickets for that at logjampresents.com. The theme, Leap of Faith. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org. Thanks to our sponsors. Missoula Federal Credit Union. Don't just bank, belong. MissoulaFCU.org. Missoula Bone and Joint, providing superior clinical orthopedic care to our patients for over 60 years. MissoulaBoneAndJoint.com. Access Physical Therapy, who has an enthusiastic team dedicated to providing compassionate and comprehensive care to their clients. Learn more at accessmissoula.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, including the Trail 103.3, Missoula's quality rock, and part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. You 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station, and ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlightened Lab Float Center. Enlightened Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Fieldy Design, Montana stickers, mugs, and apparel with a twist. Etsy.com slash shop slash Fieldy Design. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashforjunkersmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Kate Haleva, Elsie Enga, Mike McTee, and Mike Coluccia. Thanks for listening. Remember, your story matters. Learn more about Tell Us Something at tellusomething.org.